0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators introduced the Protecting Kids on Social Media Act, legislation that would require social media platforms to verify the age of users, prohibit the use of algorithmic recommendation systems for individuals under age 18, require parent or guardian consent for minors to use social media, and prohibit users who are under age 13 from accessing social media platforms altogether. The bill is just the latest in a string of federal proposals aimed at protecting children from the Kids Online Safety Act to the Stop CSAM Act and more. But while the House and Senate debate such measures, states are moving ahead with their own versions of bills. Chief among these is California's age-appropriate design code, which passed last year and is due to come into effect in July 2024. It seeks to limit the collection of data from users under 18 and to hold tech companies accountable for designing products with children's privacy and safety in mind. The law currently faces a legal challenge from industry and some legal experts say parts of it may violate the First Amendment. How the courts decide the matter may have implications across the country, where dozens of other bills have passed or are advancing in states such as Utah, Arkansas, Texas, Maryland, Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. These bills vary in their composition and intent. As Tate Ryan Mosley recently reported at MIT Technology Review, quote, while some aim to protect privacy, others risk eroding it some could have a chilling effect on free speech online, unquote. Efforts to introduce protections for children online are also underway in other countries, as evidence accrues of a variety of negative mental health and privacy concerns. But what approaches best preserve freedom of expression while requiring changes on platforms that protect children's interests and address the worries of parents? In today's podcast, we'll hear from one UK lawmaker and advocate who has been influential in the global push for more protections for children online. Baroness Biban Kidron is a crossbench member of the House of Lords and sits on the Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee, and she's a commissioner for UNESCO's Broadband Commission for Sustainable Development, where she's a member of the Working Group on Child Online Safety. She's the founder and chair of Five Rights Foundation, which seeks to ensure children and young people are afforded the right to participate in the digital world, quote, creatively, knowledgeably, and fearlessly, unquote. Five Rights played a key role in advancing the UK Children's Code, as well as the California age-appropriate design code. I asked Baroness Kidron about the broad trajectory of efforts to address online child safety, what she thinks about the challenge to the California law and some of the harsher provisions of laws in other parts of the country, and where she believes the fight for child digital safety is headed in the future.
1: I'm uh, B. Ban Kidron. I'm Baroness B. Ban Kidron. I'm a crossbench peer in the House of Lords here in the UK. I'm also founder and chair of Five Rights Foundation, which is a charity that works uh, in all kinds of ways to establish a more equal system between children and the tech that they're using.
0: Baroness Kitchen, could you just tell folks a little bit about Five Rights, how it came into being, uh, where it operates, and how it's organized?
1: Five Rights started, you know, six, eight years ago, something like that. And really, it was because people started trying to join my effort to put kids' safety, kids' rights on the map. And no one was really talking about the digital world in relation to children at the point at which I first got involved, 2012, 2013. And as I started moving into that space, people started wanting to join. And I realized I needed an organization for them to join with. So really it's, it's grown out of that. It, we're a very collegiate organization. We work with all sorts of people all over the world, which are either NGOs or policymakers, technicians, engineers, tech companies. It doesn't matter who they are. We're very, very open, but we're very clear that we have three things that we want. One is to have children's existing rights manifest in the digital world applied right across. The other thing is we want the system designed with them in mind. So how would you do this differently if you knew your end user was a child, you know, is the thing. And the other thing is that we really work very closely with young people, with children and young people who don't have much agency in this space and don't have much of a voice. And so a lot of our advisors are actually also the people who we're talking about. And so those three things, providing that that you buy into those three ideas, uh, we actually work very collaboratively with people all over the world. A
0: 2019 profile of you by Natasha Singer in the New York Times found you recounting your plan. And the quote that stood out to me was, it's little Timmy in his bedroom versus Mark Zuckerberg in his valley. now it's four years later since that profile. That plan has borne some fruit. How would you characterize where you've got to at this moment? How has the plan changed? What has it delivered?
1: yeah, I, I think that that really the big change over those years is that maybe we've stopped arguing about what the problem is, and we've started arguing about solution. You know, for the first period, uh, people treated me like I was a middle-aged woman who didn't know what rock and roll was, yeah? And apart from the fact that it was kind of, you know, gendered and boring and I started my life as a as a camera operator, ended up being a film director and came into tech as someone who was an early adopter of tech. So it was at the very least patronizing. Uh, The truth of the matter is that that idea that there's been a generational injustice that something that was sort of invented to connect academics who were very like similar to each other, yeah, uh, has become the organizing technology of our world. Yeah. No one thought about what it would be like for a child to grow up in that world. Right. And it wasn't designed with children in mind. Now, I think everybody buys into that notion that, that took me quite a long time to to say, which is actually if you treat all users equally, then you treat a child as if they are an adult. And that means you are taking no account of their emotional, physical, you know, intellectual development, no account for the vulnerabilities of their age or agency, and no account of the normal sort of privileges and protections of childhood. It's not only about uh, protection, it's also about being allowed to be someone different when you're eight and 18, being someone different when you're 11 and 21. You know, there's a load of things that become very problematic if you think that from the moment kids get any kind of device, they're going to be treated as if they're adult. And if I say now that one in five kids under the age of five have a device of their own in the UK, right? I don't know what it is in the States, but I'm sure it's very similar. Yeah. So we're going to start treating one in five under five-year-olds with the same uh, attention as adults? That's ridiculous.
0: So one of the Crowning achievements, I assume, of your effort has been the UK Children's Code, uh, which went into effect in, I believe, September of 2021. What's been the impact of the UK Code so far? Has it faced any significant challenges?
1: Well, it, it faced quite a lot of ch- challenges on the route to being uh, adopted. You know, there was uh, all the lobbying in the world, there was a lot of disbelief, there was a lot of sort of arguing about about language about approach about whether it make any difference and it always amuses me you know that half of the people said it would make no difference and the other half of the people said it would break the internet you know and somewhere in that in that middle bit you think well maybe maybe i'm onto something here you know uh, between those two things so i think when you come to now and you say that actually in the transition period it did become law in uh, as you say 20 one September 21, but the transition period, uh, was a year long. So from September 20, um, it was clear what it was. And in fact, even before September 20, it was clear what it was going to be. And since that time, we've seen a lot of tech companies roll out hundreds and hundreds of design changes. Now, in the beginning, they used to pretend that they were just fantastic about child safety and it had nothing to do with the upcoming code. Um, In a period that shortly followed that, where they were being regularly hauled into Congress and Parliament and, uh, you know, the European uh, Union, they started saying, oh, no, 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 we're fantastic because we do the age-appropriate design code. So they went from denial to, to adoption rather swiftly. But maybe the most interesting thing is to kind of look at what they Started to do and the kinds of things. And as I say, there's hundreds of small changes. So, you know, we can't go from here, but the sort of eye catching changes, if you like, are, you know, when TikTok actually stopped notifying under 15 year olds at 9 PM and under 17 year olds at 10 PM, you go, Oh, they can design for different groups. Yeah. Evolving capacities. And actually it is a harm to keep kids awake and notified throughout the night. And in fact, Harvard does show that teachers teach at the level that the tiredest child can manage and so on. So there's one, you know, meantime, uh, Instagram, TikTok, both took out direct messaging uh, for under 18s from unknown adults. I mean, you know, when I say that, mostly people go in horror and clutch their neck and they go, why was that allowed in the first place? Unknown adults to kids who are basically, you know, parading their wares from their bedrooms is not a good look, yeah? I think, interestingly, Google took out 18 plus apps from their app store, you know, just so that you couldn't see them if you went in as a kid. It wasn't about whether you can download them or can't download them. It was just like, if they're 18 plus, forget it. And we all know what 18 plus means. It's not, you know, we're not talking about meaning that they can't, you know, look at Fox News or the New York Times. We're talking about adult dating sites and 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 pornography and, you know, the kinds of things most people don't want kids to have access to. And on it goes, you know, a lot of really interesting changes and a lot of uh, very subtle changes and a hell of a lot of changes.
0: So I'm sure some of those changes perhaps were more pronounced when you brought the code from the UK, into a U.S. context. I understand you and your foundation were heavily involved in the drafting of the California age-appropriate design code. Are there differences between the countries that make it more challenging to implement the vision that you had for the U.K. code in the U.S.?
1: If you don't mind, I'm just going to slightly reframe that question. I will answer it. but, But here's the thing. I think It is fair to say I did not have a vision of, you know, the UK code being everybody's code. What I had was a vision of how you would design for children if you thought about them for half a second. Right. And, you know, what has happened is people who have been struggling with this issue have suddenly gone, Oh my God. The UK has a code. Why don't we have a code? Why shouldn't California's children have the same protections as the UK? And they ring up, right? And I go, yeah, you should. It's not that difficult. Do it, right? And I do think that some of, uh, you know, some of its uh, professional detractors, if I might put it that way, uh, like to sort of treat it as if it's a Personal mission of one person sitting, you know, in an unelected chamber in the UK. I do have a personal vision, which is to build the digital world young people deserve. Yeah. That is my vision and it's entirely personal to me. I do not uh, control the way other people in other jurisdictions approach that. And evidence of that is that I also work with the IEEE who are trying to create technical standards for children yeah i also work with uh, the the council on the rights of the child who are trying to take a rights approach you know i also work with the african union who are trying to make sure that the ways that we protect kids don't take so much infrastructure that their community can't afford it and i also work with a lot of enforcement and and uh, specialists in the area of child sexual abuse and violence against children uh, to make sure that's not happening. And also, and we may get to this, I have a very particular interest in looking forward and not back. And I think if I had a criticism of most of the efforts around the world, it's that they are actually trying to regulate what is already passed and they're missing the boat again on what's about to happen. And so, you know, in reframing the question, I go, I was absolutely delighted you know to help whatever help I could be in California and say look this is my experience this is what I think works and yes if you align then we can you know we can marry the same cases and 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 indeed other US states but you know even before California Ireland had done it you know this is not a kind of one stop shop and I I think that's really important to understand
0: I do just want to press you a little bit on you know, some of the context in the United States and uh, see what your thoughts are on it. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, in California, there is a substantial legal challenge to the bill. Net choice is leading a challenge arguing uh, the bill violates the First Amendment, uh, giving the government unconstitutional control of online speech. Uh, you've got uh, some of those professional experts that you refer to, like Santa Clara University School of Laws, Eric Goldman, Uh, who raises similar concerns about uh, online speech. What's your sort of thinking on that at the moment? How does this law comport with the kind of U.S. uh, First Amendment context?
1: Well, I am just really bewildered, if I might say, about their focus on speech. Because A, this is a data protection code, and B, it's a design code, and see the way you get to it is you do a risk assessment of your own service and say, hmm, am I going to damage kids? It doesn't say anything about content. It's not a content moderation code. So what they're doing is they're going to their legal, you know, they're going to their cabinet, they're pulling out their last legal attack on whoever did whatever they did, and they're shoving it at us. And I think what it is is um, honestly... I, I I think it's flag waving it's saying, hey, we're gonna come after you if you do this. Don't think about copying the California code. You know, we're coming after you. There is nothing about the First Amendment in this code. There is nothing. There are other issues you could raise against the code, but but it simply isn't about content. It's not about speech. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have some very personal feelings about the way that they uh, the same community, I can say, uh, you know, came after me personally and the kinds of things, you know, that they tried to get going around me. But to be honest, you know, I'm not for taking things down. I'm not for blocking. I'm not for kicking out. I'm not even for excessive parental controls, which is probably the bigger cultural gap uh, between me and the U.S. Uh, than the First man I am absolutely determined, not only that uh, that that I should have free speech, which is my, you know, which is one of my rights, but actually children should have free speech. They have to be, it has to be possible, you know, to participate, you know, in, in the conversation. And none of what we're doing here with the code is doing that. What the code does is it says, it's not, a corporation's God-given right to exploit children, monetize children, or harm children for commercial gain, yeah? And that what you've got to do is actually check whether you're doing any of those things before you do them, and take some steps to make sure you don't. And, and if I might make even one more point on that issue, is that you know, there are people and we may get to it about the various things that are popping up in states that I have absolutely nothing to do with, you know, that are very, very controlling. Right. And and there are, uh, you know, a colleague of mine said this actually, uh, you know, in a debate in the Lords. And he, he basically said, you know, are we going for for an air, you know, an airplane kind of uh, level of safety, you know, where absolutely everything is about safety because you don't, you want zero accidents. Yeah. Or are we going for uh, a driving car kind of safety where we accept that there are a level of accidents, but there's rules about the car, there's rules about the driver, there's rules about the road, and there's rules about the pedestrians. Yeah. And that is what we're going for here. The code does not take out all risk. It is not 100% secure. You don't get to have the code and then you don't have to worry about your kids. It's absolutely not that. It is just really much more like saying you would not ship a car without brakes, without a rearview mirror, without an airbag, without a thing, you know, and then put A 12 year old in charge. You just wouldn't do that. We don't do that. This is actually normalizing uh, online life in a way that online or the digital environment has become normalized. You know, if we weren't all living in it 24 7, we wouldn't need to worry about how it affects kids. But since we are, why do we have different rules? And, And this sort of era of exceptionalism, I think even the more nuanced free speech advocates, are beginning to say, you know, free speech is not the same as, you know, free reign over every thought, behavior, action that we take 24-7. I'll
0: query you just a little further on, is, on this, because part of the, you know, argument is that uh, age assurance, you know, creates barriers uh, for children to engage with internet content. Uh, that chills speech, uh, that it you know potentially creates barriers to participation. Uh, are there differences in the way that age assurance uh, has worked in the children's code in the u k uh, with the way that you know it's described or implemented in the California law that you think are important?
1: I actually think that there's a difference between the way it's spoken about in the media. I don't think there's actually particularly a difference in the law, if you see what I mean. So on on age assurance, I think the first thing to say is, uh, can we stop pretending it doesn't happen already? Yeah. That, you know, when you log in using Facebook, one of the pieces of information they share is your age range. Yeah. That's 42% of people on the earth. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, it's a sort of a silly argument that actually it's not only that they know your age. In fact, you know, in gameplay, you can work out the age of a child to a 93.4% accuracy in 10 seconds from how they move their body. And also, if you are one of the millions of people who are wearing one of those, you know, watches, they don't just know your age, they know when you had sex last. So, you know, I think we've got to just put the knowing of age into the context of how the world is right now, yeah? Then if you go back and say that actually, if you look carefully, it doesn't say, you know, we got to know who you are and age and identity is very separate. It doesn't actually say we've got to know exactly your age. What it suggests is that depending on the risk that you do the minimum viable Product, and there is many, many, many routes to that. Whether it is behavior, whether it is biometrics, whether it's being told by a third party, whether it's actually uh, going via. There's a fantastic things happening here around checking, you know, schools and and having uh, tokens of age related to schools and and so on, so on. But my point is, you know, that let me ask you the other way around. On the whole the large variety of people in fact a huge majority more of a majority on this issue than on possibly most social and political issues uh, would like kids not to be routinely delivered pornography would like kids not to be routinely contacted by people you know for sexual activity would like you know not for kids to have strangers Uh, coming and talking to them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So my point being that actually I think there's going to be age assurance in those other areas that we concern about, yeah, as a society. And I I don't know what it is in America, but here it is, I think, something like 92% of, of parents would like age assurance around those things. So on the one hand, we get that. The question is not whether we have age assurance. It's is it private? Is it, does it work? Is it secure? Does it undermine the rights of adults? Does it kick kids out where they shouldn't be kicked out? And if you notice what's in the the code, it says it must be proportionate to risk. Low risk, low assurance, yeah? And the last thing I want to say about age assurance is I am kind of, you know, wryly interested in latterly, a lot of the cases going against uh, companies who have failed to uphold their own limit of 13, yeah? And you kind of go, I didn't invent 13. I don't even like 13. But why is it that they are bleating about age assurance when they're failing to uphold their own rules, you know? And, and when you put it in that complexity on the one hand, yeah? And then you start to look at all the different ways in which age assurance is now being achieved. And a lot of it is very is a lot less intrusive than it is sort of managerial. You know, you ask someone their age in one way, they lie, you ask it in another way, they don't lie. If they lie, you don't let them back in again, you ask them later, and they forget what name, you know, and, you know, there's lots of layers of doing it that you don't even need to know who, why, what, or any other piece of data about them that are perfectly adequate in order to deliver their data rights or information in a way that they can understand, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are some very hardcore ones. But I would I would maintain if you're buying a knife here, which is 18 or a gun in the States, which is whatever it is in different States, you want to have a robust version. And if you're doing it to give them a video about their privacy rights. You really don't care, you know, roughly speaking, knowing what their age is, so that you can deliver something good to them is a good thing. So I I actually think it's a little bit like the the First Amendment debate. You know, if you really, really want to make it so extreme that there is no nuance, you know, it looks terrible. But actually when you get into the reality, it seems to me a very poorly held debate.
0: You've already pointed to the fact that there are other children's safety bills that are uh, being advanced across the U.S. And I want to talk a little bit about those. But I guess I'll just, you know, kind of, as you have perhaps drop the uh, veil, my my kind of personal considerations in this matter. I am a parent. I have uh, young children who use digital media. And, uh, you know, I'm aware of uh, the various challenges to that, uh, the, the way it impacts uh, both their lives, and moods, and attention, and uh, even family dynamics, uh, as I'm sure many of the parents uh, listening to this may be. Uh, but I'm also sympathetic to, you know, some of the concerns, particularly around some of the bills we're seeing pop up in other parts of the U.S. Who are worried that things may be going a bit too far. You know, there are these variants of of these age appropriate uh, design codes, children safety bills where, you know, there's clearly a kind of authoritarian intent, you know, often the lawmakers that are advancing them, you know, in word and deed do represent, you know, their ideas do represent a danger to marginalized youth, to LGBTQ youth. Utah, of course, uh, this law that prohibits tech platforms uh, from allowing users under 18 to have accounts without explicit consent of a parent or guardian. Are there child safety bills that you oppose at present or, uh, versions of these design codes that you would disavow?
1: Well, I, I think the first thing I have to say to be really clear is I am, you know, I'm a member of a different legislator in a, in a different country, right? So I have no position from which to disavow anything, right? So just to be really clear about that. But I think if you were to be unfortunate enough to trawl through everything I have ever said in public on this issue, (laughs) um, you would know that I do not think that parental controls is the answer, because not all people have engaged parents, not all people have parents, not all parents do right by their kids. And also, I was a child, right? I didn't want my parents to know my everything. At the age of 15, 16, 17, I probably, and I'm not prepared to say what age I am now, wouldn't want my parents to know everything I thought right now either. So I think the truth of the matter is, you know, and, and there is a wonderful, wonderful episode of Black Mirror, which was a UK uh, TV show that, that that actually brilliantly explains what's wrong with parents knowing everything. Um, I think the other thing is. Uh, just from a really serious point of view is I have supported the creation of a set of bereaved parents whose kids have been either committed suicide or been murdered, but in some way very much to do with the digital world. And in a recent meeting in which each of, you know, five of the families told politicians what their experience was, four of the five had parental controls, So, I think it's a false dawn. It's, It's a false dawn. So, my biggest objection is twofold. One is, I guess, I am concerned that people think parental controls is some sort of silver bullet, and then they find out it's not. And then the second thing is, if you look at all of my work, and I did start by uh, chairing a group that, that wrote the addendum to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is actually about their right to participate, their right to education, their right to information. You know, I actually feel that we infantilize children if we don't understand that they have evolving capacities. And I will go back to what I've already said to you. And I often have to say it because I think people slip to the content, slip to the control, slip to that. But actually, I'm not talking about either locking kids in their bedrooms, nor am I talking about putting them in cotton wool. I'm actually talking about whether it is okay for major corporations to systemically and routinely exploit them. So I'm not really looking at the relationship between children and parents here, although obviously, because of the work I do, I have quite a lot of knowledge about how it plays out. I'm looking in terms of the legislative tool at safety, product safety. And I just just am bewildered You know, because I literally and if someone wants to, you know, if you have a lot of listeners and they'd like to write to me, my email address is on the parliamentary website. Please tell me another sector that doesn't have to make sure that their product is safe for the consumer to whom they sell, engage or give it away. If someone can tell me another sector, because it ain't transport and it ain't food and it ain't drugs and it ain't toys and it ain't, you know, I literally cannot find one. So if someone can answer that, I probably can go home and stop doing this. But actually, we're talking about product safety here. And, and I think all of these other things are unwittingly or wittingly diversionary. And the only people that they serve Not the children, not the citizen, not the politician. A company has got a free card, and I don't think companies should have free cards on our kids.
0: Of course, there's a a broader conversation about this than just what's happening here in the United States, although it is truly gathering steam here in the states as uh, various legislation pops up around the country. I think uh, there are a couple of dozen, if not more, states that are considering the child safety legislation at present. Can you maybe back back out uh, the global picture beyond the UK, beyond the US, uh, where else are these types of laws being considered or uh, regulatory interventions?
1: I think I can honestly say there is nowhere, you know, that is not, you know, I mean, there are obviously there are places in the world in which conflict or natural disaster or failed states, you know, I mean, there are those countries that are not considering this, but you can absolutely, without question, say that this is very high on the agenda. And I think there's one thing that may be interesting in in considering the global, which is when we were doing, you know, it's called a general comment, it's the addendum to the convention of the rights of child saying how children's rights apply in the digital world. One of the things we did was we ran workshops in 28 different countries. Now, the workshops were not tick box. They were either three hours or six hours. And they happened with children between the age of seven uh, and 19, I think. What absolutely confounded all the people who crunched the numbers, as it were, about what their attitudes were, was that wherever they were in the world, children had probably, you know, four-fifths of their concern, 80% of their concern were absolutely identical. So in some of the global South, there was more concern about price of data, access to the internet, things like that. In some of the Middle Eastern countries, there was more divergence uh, around gender, about who had what access and on what basis, and so on. But for the most part, the kids were talking about the hostility, the addiction, the nudges, the, the social and personal sort of despair that they felt in the competition, et cetera, et cetera, all the things, and, of course, the, the sexual and the violence and, the, and so on. The children thought the same things because they're all using the same services. And so now what you're actually saying is that in the development of a child, which used to be school family and state was the sort of cultural envelope is actually more determined by using snap tiktok instagram youtube etc than it is by those things and i think that that is something that people really should think about when they start dancing on a head of a pin about whether this thing or that thing may shift the balance. I think they're all looking over there, thinking about tiny little pieces of, you know, of things that we hold true, which I hold true too. Yeah. But I think that they are missing the car crash that is coming through the center of the frame. And, And I think that 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 moment just really made me understand that this, by design, by default, product safety was even more important than the rights. Not that it's less important. We do need kids. We must have a well-being mission. We must have a positive vision of the digital world for kids, because this is where the future will be built. And I do think that this is ultimately Profoundly, in fact, a case of uses and abuses. It's not about tech and everything that has come, you know, directly from my hand or indeed from uh, colleagues that we work with around the world, either in five rights or outside of five rights, always says the digital world, not social media, always mm-hmm. says by design, not don't do this and don't do that. And and again, I I think I've said this already, but I can't stress it enough. My biggest fear for the world is we're all taking a pot shot backwards. And actually, you know, what we really should be looking at is AI, is immersive tech, is generative systems, you know. and, And actually, we need to have a really, really, I mean, I consider myself a privacy activist. I just do it on behalf of children. But, you know, we really need to have a conversation about what privacy is. Because actually, you know, the current conversation is is as if it's a 2D world between us and the state. But actually, the the people who are kind of making out like bandits from our lack of privacy are actually the commercial players. And I think if you don't put that third leg of the stool out there, you are just, you know, living in cloud cuckoo land.
0: Well, I want to ask you uh, about the Bandits. Um, You, in that 2019 profile, uh, it sort of situated you uh, at a meeting in Silicon Valley where you were engaging with uh, technology executives. Are you still welcome in Menlo Park? Are you still welcome in those offices? Uh, Or, you know, as the various tech firms fund different legal challenges against your work, um, are you finding doors are often closed?
1: Uh, no, I'm not finding them closed. I do go and see people. Um, I do speak to people in all of most of the companies. I mean, there are some who I know better than others, just for probably historic reasons rather than any good reason. And I, and I was in Washington and I saw companies, uh, you know, just very recently, you know, two or three months ago, you know, we are adversaries. The detailed conversations. Never leave the room. And the detailed conversations are not political. They're practical. This is what's difficult about what you're saying. This is what they have you thought about it like this? That's ridiculous to say that. You know, they are very practical. But the, the, the reality of those um, conversations is I'm saying to them, don't resist the good stuff. If what we're saying didn't hurt, it wouldn't be making a difference and it wouldn't be, you know, dealing with the problem. But if you don't go for the good stuff, you're going to get a lot of very much more negatively radical, if you like, and very often uh, unimplementable. You know, I come back to the beginning of our conversation and go, yeah, again and again, I've been told it's fluffy, it's woolly, it's what does best interest mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? But, you know, you start with a service. You start with a risk assessment. You get the principles written up on post it notes next to you. You do know what to do at the end. It is a system of design, keeping kids in mind. And that is not the most we should expect from the tech sector. It's the least. I actually think that they push it away at their peril, actually. And, you know, there are some of the things that you've alluded to that are their peril. (laughs) I am, you know, speaking as an individual here, because we're talking about the US, I'm not speaking as a politician. But you know, I have spoken to a lot of parents groups, I've spoken to bereaved families, I've spoken to, to families with addicted kids who, you know, who are willing to do anything to play one more route on the game, you know, this is not a happy place. This is a sort of a collective torture of a group of people to whom we owe a duty of care. And I think you've already said, you know, you're someone with, you know, at least one small child in the house. You know, if you don't want better for your child than actually, you know, at the age of eight, being, you know, bombarded through the night with Either such vacuous, empty bullshit, you know, that it's only there to keep you on. It's not even content. Yeah. Or indeed, that they are willing to ignore the fact that actually, contrary to how it plays out in the media, most children first see porn, not because they look for it, but because they're offered it up. Most girls. Get involved in self harm, not because they looked at it, but because someone recommended it to them. I think that is an abuse. Yeah. Now, the code doesn't do all of that, but I think it makes the companies think about what the end result of the design of their product is. And that's all I'm asking. It's not much to ask. And I think it is working better than most people expected.
0: We started the conversation talking about your plan, and I think we've to some extent we've hit where it's at in the moment, uh, where you've got to, what your considerations are at the moment. You're clearly already looking ahead, thinking about AI, thinking about the quote unquote metaverse, et cetera. What's next? Where are you going to take the take the fight next?
1: so i I think that we've got a few fights ongoing, you know around around the code and around making sure that we don't do with tech regulation what we did with baby milk. I'm not interested that we, you know, get it out of the global north and we send it all to the global south and poison their kids. So I think there's a bit of making sure that the, the, the advances we make, we make together. Um, So that bit is very much done, you know, on the ground by friends and colleagues and other NGOs and so on. I here right now have got, uh, you know, both a data bill and an online safety bill coming through Parliament. So that preoccupies me in various ways. But my real, if you want the plan, I have recently uh, become a fellow in the computer science department at Oxford. And I plan to do some work on contestable AI, on, you know, verification of information, you know, not only age, but in general, what does that look like? And on uh, measurement of harms. And also, I'm looking at the legal language around the metaverse to see what taxonomy, so that the metaverse isn't a place where everything ghastly happens, but nobody but nobody's touched, as it were. So those are the those are my areas of concern. And obviously, I look at everything through the lens of the under 18, through the child. But you know, I am a citizen myself, and I'm interested in the fact that when I get attacked, I always get attacked for my gender. Yeah, it starts with that. Um, you know, so I have I have personal interests in this area, you know, and I, and I'm very, very worried about the news and the news cycle and all of that you know, there's plenty to worry about. But those four things, making sure that we don't do the same thing again, I spent 10 years, you know, trying to persuade people that not only there was a problem, but there's an answer. I think, you know, for me, my great pleasure is in seeing other people use language, you know, like keeping children in mind, like, you know, uh, embedding their rights, like best interest, like by default design, likely to be accessed. You know, there's a whole kind of lexicon of things that are left in the way and other people will do with it something good, I believe, yeah? Uh, but for me, it's just kind of looking over the parapet and seeing, you know, what's coming up and let's not forget the kids this time. Why don't we build it in?
0: Ernest Kidron, thank you so much for speaking to me. Pleasure. That’s it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justinettechpolicy.press at or find us on Twitter at Techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening.
1: Tech Policy Press.